Hey there, my name is Dan. My name is Joshua, and, and we, we are, are the Unauthorized, unauthorized Critics Critic Circle. Circle. Now, Joshua, tell the listener what we do here at the UCK. With pleasure. Here at the UCC, we review theater... With the normal bitcheries and qualms... By watching the video recordings... From questionable origins... Of various productions. Hi, folks. Happy Pride! Did you have a bar mitzvah? Did I have a bar mitzvah? No, Did you have a bar mitzvah? No. I had a bar mitzvah. Cool. You know, it's just really fucking hard to see people going through the same... It's it's fine. It's fine. Huh? I mean, it's, it's, just, it's, just, it's, just, it's just, you know, it's weird to, like, be brought back to a really particular, really harrowing time in your life, in your childhood, in your development, in your in your growth, in your becoming of yourself, in your sort of becoming of a man, as it was. And it's it's just hard to sort of have to brush back in with that material. That's all I'm saying. Did no one show up to your bar mitzvah? I don't, it, 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 it's not a question of how many people showed up to my bar mitzvah. It's just that I was very, I was in a very particular part of my life in that moment, and I was expecting to really be brought back there. And then you just see this little kid, this little Anthony Rosenthal piece of shit, go back through that thing, and it just takes you back. And that's all, that's all I'm going to say. That's all, that's all I'm saying. That's all I have to say. Wow. And I mean, like, this, the fact that this kid would, like, be offered a bar mitzvah and just completely throw it in his family's face. I mean, like, does he understand the amount of money and the amount of work that goes into this shit? I mean, if I... It's fine. It's fine. You didn't watch the last season of And Just Like That when Charlotte tried to have a they mitzvah for her non-binary child. And they were having the bar mitzvah and they were there. And then the kid wouldn't go through with it. And Charlotte decided... I guess that's okay. I'll have a bar mitzvah. I converted. I never had a bar mitzvah. I'm 60, but I'll do it. And all the stuff with the caterers. and God. Sorry, did you say something? What happened at your bar mitzvah? I'm so doing early? fine. I'm doing fine. I'm well. This is going to be a did great, great episode. you have like a Hollywood episode. theme? Welcome back to the Unauthorized Critic Circle, folks. Uh, today we're talking about the William Finn, Jason, James All Lepine, I will have to say is falsettos. if I had a bar mitzvah, my theme would be Jewish, okay? I feel like that <laughs> covers enough. I don't need a hat on top of a hat. I would just say Jewish, okay? Now that we've seen falsettos, I've got a, my, I got a question for you. And the question is, uh, what's, your, what's your falsettos background? I, I've seen this pro shot a couple times. Mm. They aired it on the radio out of L.A. back in, like, 2003. And I oh, eventually yeah. listened. That was my first experience. Not I didn't listen to it in 2003, but several years later, I got a hand of the recording and listened to that. Sure. That was my first experience. Because also, it, it, these kids today don't understand. I mean, they just type in falsettos and the Broadway cast recording comes along. They put that on. And I mean, this fucking pro shot comes along. Like, this is the most easily searchable, you know. If you wanted to know what falsettos was, you had to figure out that March of the Falsettos and Falsetto Land were falsettos and listen to those recordings and put five and five Mm, together. Yeah. Five. It's five and five, the saying? Uh, What have you? I have a couple friends who, like, caught it who caught this production on tour and I sort of it, heard about it. I wanted to see the tour, but it was such a short tour. Like, was yeah, it was like six months, four or five months, something like that. This particular pro shot has just been like the most pervasive piece of musical theater content 
in my entire adolescent life. There was never an easier musical to watch than that one Hamilton bootleg and this pro shot. Those were the two. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've had all these like little bits and pieces and watching it today for the first time ever was the first time it actually all coalesced into something for me. You weren't a happy camper. I was not, no. (laughs) I want to watch this fucking pro shot again. You, I don't want to watch this! You were, I wanted to watch Mandy Patinkin! And I also want to watch Mandy Patinkin, but the thing is, I am firmly of the belief that this is the production that is, like, at this moment, most intimately associated with falsettos as it was. It, I know this is what everyone knows. I wanted to watch Mandy Patinkin! And I still want to watch Mandy Patinkin! I, I was, wanted to watch Mandy Patinkin! Well, go, well, let's, I said, we can, we can wait another two and a half hours. Let's go watch Mandy Patinkin and then come back. No. Well, well, then I you're just being a bastard. I want to say more. We're recording now. Well, then you're just being I a bastard. I want to watch Mandy Patinkin. You're being a bastard and I hate you. I want to watch Mandy Patinkin. It was pride. You were listening to me. <laughs> it was pride? Is pride. Happy pride. You don't listen to me. Happy pride. <laughs> I want to watch Mandy Patinkin. Um... All this being said, what 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 was your what was your hesitation going into this? It wasn't me, but taken. That's truly that's it. Is that the, is that if if this if it was this production and this cast and everything plus Mandy Patinkin, you'd be down? Well, no, because there'd have to be other casting changes too. Well, there you go. Do you want me to get into it now? Yes, of course I do. What the fuck do you I think I've been bringing this up for? I'm not a huge fan of this cast. Yeah, they're going to crucify me. I'm not a huge fan of this cast. Well, I saw this... As someone who saw this completely fresh, it's interesting... It was interesting to both be seeing this for the first time and yet to be so very nostalgic about this era of musical theater and what it meant to me around this time. This era? It was like five years ago era as in like that year you know i didn't really really get into musical theater until like 2019 2020 but this was one of the shows that was most pervasive around me and watching this for the first time i'm sitting here going god i would have loved this in high school so you didn't not totally not totally but i sat there thinking god i would have been a nerd about this it's pride i shouldn't have to do any of the labor of moving the episode forward fucking bottom uh so huh nothing okay falsettos book by james lapine music and lyrics by william um (laughs) the book is not solely credited to james lapine is it credited to lapine and finn yeah i mean that makes sense it's an entirely sung through musical (sighs) i hate to say it but the book credit for james lapine here is kind of a vanity credit it seemed like it's probably a director credit. He did no more book work than Hal Prince did book work on Evita. Sure. In that he sat around and Bill Finn was having a million ideas and he kind of said, okay, this is how I think we could string this together. This piece is missing. You need to write this and you need to write this. I can understand to an extent how you get that as a book credit. It's, it's kind of... It's, I'm not mad about a, it, but it's yeah, not... It's he kind didn't do of any... more of a dramaturgy credit, almost, I want to say, then. Yeah, he, he never sat down and, like, typed out writing for this. 
Yeah. When it comes to the like notion of distilling and choosing and you know selecting specific ideas, to an extent that's basically the job of the director. But also in like the actual crafting and creation of the show, I can understand him going like, "Well, I I, I sort of I was a, I was integral to the assemblage of it." Mm-hmm. I can get that. But but at the end of the day, this is a this is a William Finn piece of writing through and through. Yeah. That's good. What what what's your what's your what's the top Will Finn work for you? I think it's a new brain. Sure. I, I do think I like a new brain more than falsettos. Interesting. That that was one of the for for listeners of the podcast, you'll know that this was uh, one of the first episodes the unauthorized critic circle ever did. And if you didn't know that, go fucking listen, you piece of shit. Um Wow. I listen weirdly aggressive. I yeah, I don't know where that came from either. I can I, I I'm kind of with you. It's interesting though to talk about falsettos as a as a single musical it's part of the marvin trio it is and it's what has always perplexed me about falsettos even like long before ever watching it, the thing that always perplexed me is that falsettos is number two and three of a trilogy i i was almost like thinking beforehand going like how the hell does that work how do you do a trilogy without its beginning I don't know to what extent you felt that, but it did, to a small extent, feel like this show was missing a beginning sequence. I don't honestly know that it completely is. You, you didn't think so? I mean, because really all you're getting in that first part, not all you're getting, but you're getting Marvin and Trina's marriage, and, like, that's covered. It is. And I understand, like, material-wise, how you don't need that portion of the story to make this rest of it make sense. But the beginning of tight knit family is a lot of exposition in like 16 bars of music or not 16 bars, like 32 bars. You know what I mean? Like it's really cramped. Okay. So here's who I am. Here's who that is. This is my relationship. This is everything you missed. Uh, this is what you missed on Glee. You know, like it felt very sporadic to me and it, I didn't feel like I need a whole other musical to make this work. But I was sitting there going like, all right, I guess we're just jumping right into this. I don't really understand or feel anything about these characters to be introduced to them like this. Mm. You know what I mean? I see where you're coming from, but I don't really share. The thing that's interesting for me about falsettos, it's the trio. And the trio were three one acts that were produced at different times. So in Trousers comes from 79... Um, March of the Falsettos, I believe, was 81. Yep. And, uh, Falsetto Land was 1990. Yes. And I do feel each of the parts you come in and it's related to the character, but it's a slightly different character. Mm-hmm. Like, yes. March of the Falsettos, Marvin, is not the same person as Falsetto Land, Marvin. Oh, of course. And it's interesting the way that the that this production like ties them together because I do think if we had seen like even even act 1 and act 2 as different things, I would have fully accepted them as being different narratives, though they though they would have felt there was connective tissue. Though though I would have felt as though there was like connective tissue missing. But yeah, at the end of the, it, it, it is interesting the amount of development of these characters between these moments, which I think comes in part from a narrative and part from 
the amount of distance between writing these works and the amount of development Will Finn would have had as a writer. That's the noticeable thing. March of the Falsettos mm-hmm. and Falsetto Land are... They're not the same show. They are wildly different shows that happen to be performed together. You summarized the difference between the two well as we were watching it. March of the Falsettos is a review of moments around Marvin's life. It's a review that has something of a plot, but it is not a traditional plotted work of musical theater. Falsetto Land is a traditional work of musical theater, and it feels very late 80s. Sondheim has existed. (laughs) And we know what an off-Broadway show is. And we know how you can tell a regular musical in an Mm -hmm. off-Broadway setting. And I think that's partially the change. I mean, because they're three one-acts from off-Broadway. Off-Broadway shows... Well, I think off-Broadway shows earlier on were more reviews. And they tended to not have the most plot you would have something like the fantastics which absolutely does have a plot but is experimental i think really with the success of little shop of horrors if we're going to be honest 1982 that's a traditional musical it's a traditional broadway musical it needs to be in a small space so it happened to be off broadway but it's a traditional broadway musical and all of a sudden you could just do a small scale broadway musical and put it off Broadway. Yeah. And I don't know. To kind of get to the bottom of it, I'm I kind of prefer Falsetto Land to March of the Falsettos. I do too. I do too. I do think March of the Falsettos structure is frankly pretty impressive. I am really impressed with the way it is able to string along its storytelling and the way it presents itself in these vignettes, in these sort of moments and the way that it adds up to a total thing it's decently structured but it's just so random we start off for jews in a room bitching okay we're starting off it's a nice comedy song i want a tight-knit family and then we launch into a 10-minute marvin at the psychiatrist's office and so you're kind of given we had the nice opening number to get you settled and now we're a very different show. And, 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 and we're see? expecting the rest of the show to be Marvin at the psychiatrist. When, in reality, we're going to have another two or three shows presented to us before the act is over. And all of those different shows are um, not necessarily fighting with each other, but they're coexisting and they're not um, really overlapping, to be honest. And, and see... I think that was one of the huge problems with me in not having in trousers here because March of the Falsettos feels as though you're already meant to be introduced to Trina, right? Mm-hmm. Like it starts itself off as, as though you already know Trina and you've already been with her and you're already following her. Well, you're saying that her walking on slavery is not an introduction <laughs> to the character. No, but like, you know, the first time we actually really spend time with her, she's in the middle of a, psychiatry session and we're like whoa but who are you like what Mm -hmm. like 
this is a very intense personal moment for us to be. I feel like I would really be like interested in what she has to say and really caring about her if I knew who she was before this moment. And there's, yeah. I, don't, I don't know that there's a way around this without adding like 15 minutes to this show that it doesn't need beyond just just I, doing trousers yeah. and do and and embracing this <clears throat> as being like a five hour theater event. Yeah, I don't. Um... I don't think the show needs any kind of rewrites or anything. It, it is no, no. It is what it is, and you're going to accept it or not. And for yeah. the most part, I accept it. There are just some peculiarities that pop up. There are. And all this to say, the reason that I think particularly that I preferred Falsetto Land to March of the Falsettos is because I think, to an extent, March of the Falsettos feels like this... It, it, it feels like a middle point, you know? It feels like the middle juncture between the beginning of the story and the end of the story. And we're sort of jumping ourselves right into the middle of this thing. And we spend a lot of time really immersing ourselves in these characters with some really, some really excellent demonstrations of work and some really fantastic character moments, some really fantastic plot moments, some really fantastic songs, some really fantastic lyrics. And then it just kind of wraps up. Mm-hmm. Without, like, you know, without really a conclusion it just sort of we comes can, to its end we can kind of I said it's a review around moments in Marvin's life but I, I honestly feel like we could have a discussion of who is the protagonist of March of the Falsettos is it Marvin or is it the kid well I have it's a more I, concluding ending if it's the kid I was talking to someone else about this as I was watching and I was texting someone else that I was like you know, I'm watching it for the first time, and I don't, uh, you know, sort of not sure how I feel about this. Um, and he, he, my friend said, uh, I, I liked it because uh, because of the way the production is through the lens of Jason. And, I, and I, I had just started the second act, and I was like, really? Is it? And I wasn't sure. I, 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 I don't think I would have been able to tell that it was through Jason's eyes. It felt very much like it was Marvin's story. Did you read any of the comments on YouTube? No, I didn't. It's extensive comments fighting about the set. Mm. And reading into things that possibly aren't there. And, oh, well, the blocks represent this, the blocks represent that. They stop using the blocks. This is completely crossing into production. They stop using the blocks because it's... uh, they're getting mature and the blocks are child's play. And now that the characters are maturing, they have to remove the blocks. Honestly, James Lapine wanted to put a concept on it. He ran out of ideas, so he removed the blocks. (laughs) That is probably 90% what happened there. I could kind of see that point, though. I could, but it feels like possibly you're reading into it. Um, you know, you can take anything and make it the way that you want. I don't think the production is through any of the characters' eyes. I think the production is through James Lapine's eyes, and he wants to do the show again, but he doesn't want to repeat to himself. It's, yeah, okay. And I guess then what you, you in hand with what you were saying about if it is through Jason's eyes giving it a more conclusive ending. Well, not through his eyes, but if he is the protagonist of the first act. 
then then that he is the character is a conclusion. He is the character that sees resolution. Because is he's there dealing more of a way to cement that. I don't think there is. I don't think there's, and that's the thing of with a review and with four or five shows existing in this first act. Jason yeah. is the protagonist in one of the shows. Marvin is the protagonist in another. Yeah, and it's a it's a because Marvin certainly is the protagonist in Falsetto Land, certainly. Mm-hmm. But but which is also interesting because Falsetto Land felt so much more like Wizards show. I was actually going to say felt so much more like I was with Jason. Mm. Like it, like that was the show where I felt like we were really in communication with him and where we were really understanding. I do not agree because I think, I think Jason has emotions in act one and he becomes a plot device in act two. It's mm. all around his bar mitzvah. We don't, we're not sitting with him trying to make a decision, which Sounds very odd to say because the entire show is him making a decision about where are you going to have the bar mitzvah and he chooses the hospital, but we don't get any interiority behind that. He seems to like Wizard, but we don't know why. We never find out why in Falsetto Land. And there is a bar mitzvah and the bar mitzvah is the tethering point to the entire act but that's kind of incidental, and he's just, I like this girl, I like this, this is beautiful, I like this mm. girl, who do I invite to my bar mitzvah, who do I invite to the plot device, rather than, I don't know what's happening with Wizard, and I feel emotionally connected to him for X reason. Because he taught him baseball. Fair. Like, but then he was invited baseball. to baseball. He was invited to the baseball before he taught him it, how to play. Like, I see why you're saying it. He's completely the tethering point of Act 2, but we lose a lot of interiority on that character. That's true. Maybe I'm just associating directness with... You're centering yourself as you're watching the show, because Bar Mitzvah, and I had a Bar Mitzvah. <laughs> I've never had You're centering yourself! I'm... You are centering yourself! And this monologue goes on for ten minutes because you're centering yourself. Yes, you are centering yourself. Reference to a musical that no one on this podcast gonna get. White girl in danger. She's doing drugs, but she won't do her homework. (laughs) That line is really fucking funny. Yeah, hysterical. Right. Anyway, to bridge back to my way original point, the falsettos. We're not covering white girl in danger. March of the Falsettos felt a bit less solid, maybe. It felt like it was a bit it was a bit less on solid ground. It felt very up in the air and it felt very liminal and it felt very sort of all over the place and it and it felt like you never really got to come down. And then Falsettos, fa- I mean Falsetto Land in my mind stuck the landing. Mm-hmm. I think took all of this character development, all of these people that we've been seeing throughout these th- this first act, all of this development that we've gone through. And then gives us a story about them now that we really care about these people. You know, it's interesting. The difference between the two, I think. March of the Falsettos, they are characters that exist, but exist in their own universe. And Falsetto Land, these are characters in a very specific time and a very specific place. Yeah. 
So the universe has come in, and they have to react to that. Yeah, and that sure as shit is what Falsetto Land is about. And maybe that's why they remove the blocks. Mm. And that's why they got all the tarp going in the back. Mm-hmm. Bill Finn score. He's got he's he's a pretty kooky guy, isn't he? I think it's a great score. Me too. Whether or not I think March of the Falsettos completely works, there is some excellent work in there. Yes. There's about nine years in between March of the Falsettos and Falsetto Land, and you definitely see him grow as a writer. And yes, I think he does these sung through musicals, and earlier on in his career, the lyrics were um, they were not effortless. They were very effortful and sweaty. And you can very Sweaty. much feel him sitting up, trying to find a word that rhymed correctly, and then rigging the line to try and make sense and try to move the plot forward. It's, um, you're aware of the amount of work that went into it. And they're not bad lyrics, but they're not easy lyrics to listen to yeah and so and this really happens in the richer to parts you land in something like games i play that's effortless and that's a terrific song you sit there with the chess game and what are you trying to say is it some kind of it's a symbol, but it doesn't completely work, and okay, we're going with that rhymes, and it kind of makes the point, but it doesn't fully pinpoint what he's trying to say. It feels very calculating at points, and very sort of cold and abrasive and sardonic and harsh, you know? Mm -hmm. Like... It feels like this is, like, the natural evolution of, I guess, New York. I want to say wittiness, but more, like, headiness. Like, just sort of, like, being really, really... It's a very left-brained thing. A new left-brain? A new left-brain, indeed. Uh, which is so interesting because of how prolific Bill Finn also is at pure, utter emotionality. Just pure, unpretentious, beautiful sentiment. But there is so much of this. And I guess that, you know, is in large part due to the characters who are these very sardonic, bitchy people. But it, it, it can be a bit abrasive at points, I find. And it doesn't necessarily always welcome you. It doesn't always invite you. It's sort of, it's sort of characters going, we're coming at you, fucking guns a-blazing, full assault, annoying. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oi, okay. At points. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be particularly more true in March of the Falsettos than in Falsetto Land. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because in Falsetto Land, these characters are forced to get real with shit. And we see them have to actually open their heart as opposed... And, and like, get out of their heads. And maybe that's why I sort of felt more strongly about it. But but it it, it just makes for an easier show to watch at that point. Mm -hmm. It's maybe a bit too cold and sardonic for me at points. But overall, I think it's fantastic work. There's so much of this. 
I I get my brain gets really fucking tickled by those moments like you know what I mean? I I like those very attacky sort of unlinear moments of composition and Bilfin is very good at being eclectic and weird and odd in that way. It's just that it all coalesces into something that's that requires a lot of very left-brained engagement. Mm-hmm. That kind of tires me out. No, it, look, I think it's a good show, and the show is its writing, and it's good writing. Yes. Um, it just, and this is really from today, watching it, not having the best time. You saw how effortful the lyrics were. And more than that, in March of the Falsettos... There's a rumor that Bill Finn does not notate his music hmm. and leaves it to the music director of each production. And not music director, but there'll be a vocal director or music director or what have you that sits, watches him play the score, record it, and then they have to figure out what he's playing to be able to notate it out. I believe Jason Robert Brown was that person on A New Brain. Mm -hmm. And Jason Robert Brown is certainly credited with the vocal arrangements. Yeah. As a result of him not writing things down, or if he does, um, not really caring about time signatures and saying hmm. to whoever is notating and music directing just figure out how it all adds up you really started to feel in march of the falsettos okay there's a missing half measure there he's dropping that he's not really completing that phrase and that's part of why it feels so frenetic because he keeps dropping half measures or a beat here or a beat there is it needed not necessarily but would it have more structure if it was there yes and oddly enough when he gets into the big numbers that's never an issue so again it's kind of sweaty effortful writing at least in March of the Falsettos. It's much more relaxed, and he's grown a lot by Falsetto Land. But it's sweaty and effortful, and you feel that he has gone back. He's found the rhyming word. Okay, now he kind of gets the line that means what he needs, but that line doesn't necessarily match the time signature he's in, so he's not really concerned about the time signature, and there's just going to be a missing beat here, and he's going to move on. Yeah. Get what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. It's just it, it it's having that time away, having that time to develop, revisiting this universe that you know, and then just more deeply, more deeply and sort of instinctively understanding where that story needs to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in maturing as a writer and being able to be more concise, knowing right, how absolutely. to get the thing that you want. Altogether, I think it's spectacular work. When and he's on, he's on, and it's yeah. beautiful. And he's and it, it and absolutely not to say at all that like he's off in March of the Falsettos and then on in Falsetto Land. He's on for a lot of March of the Falsettos, mm -hmm. and you see, and and I think those sort of cracks and those bumps just become more evident by virtue of seeing the rest of it, the second half. Mm -hmm. 
and, th and that's really what it comes down to. It's overall a, a great piece of work. Um, with a with a with a deserved legacy, frankly, with a deserved legacy. Yeah. Well, and I think I, I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think this is the first musical that dealt with AIDS. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it predates Brent, of course. Of course. Um, God, gays and musicals. We were, we did not get very far. In mm -hmm. a long time, you think back to Dance a Little Closer, and that was '86, and it was the first time a gay couple openly sang a love song to each other. Mm -hmm. They sang. They were ice skating, of course, and they sang "Why Won't the World Leave Us Alone." Brent Barrett was one of the two gay couples, two gay guys. And the couple, and then the show ended with a. Brent Barrett marriage. was one of the gay couples. Yeah, <laughs> he was his own wife. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, the show ended with a gay marriage, and that's eighty six. So and falsetto March of the Falsettos would have predated that, and there were certainly off Broadway. There were gay musicals, but on Broadway, it's not a long history. I mean, it, there's the celluloid closet, if you're familiar with the celluloid closet, where uh, Vito Russo talks about queer-coded gay movies. And you can certainly do that with musical theater, but openly saying gay and being upfront about that. And then the AIDS epidemic, it, it, hell, it only started once the AIDS epidemic was in full swing. It's weird seeing... I'm going to make a weird allegory. We're currently coming out of a pretty big cataclysmic event. Mm -hmm. And just barely us sort of starting to look like we might be on the tails of this event are all these art pieces and all these statements and all these works of creation coming out about this experience that we've shared, about this cataclysmic pandemic event, about this thing that killed hundreds of thousands that we all as a people witnessed and were victim to and i think it's really telling about the privilege that is encountered by those artists who are creating those works today that these works are happening and being created and being programmed with such immediacy and then something like the aids crisis does not have a real noticeable work about that come out in how many years how many years following the first awareness of of its occurrence. Oh, I mean, play-wise, they were dealing with it. I mean, Normal Heart was 86, 87. Normal Heart was early on in the AIDS crisis. But you, maybe I'm just thinking about musical theater then, but I guess that's also true. Musical theater, I, to be honest, musical theater, I don't think we've had the work about the AIDS crisis. I don't think it exists. Rent kind of deals with it but mishandles it in many ways um falsetto land is understandably vague yeah something bad is happening because in reality what specific year was it i don't remember a hundred percent but would they even be calling it aids or would it still be grid so i don't think we've had the great uh, quote-unquote AIDS piece 
I guess, where would you put falsettos in terms of musicals from the 90s? It's a quirky, dinky little piece that I think has stood the test of time because of the fact that it's just about these characters. And I think it's just very human and very grounded and very, very unpretentious about itself. And I think that's what's let people latch onto it so much. I think that's that's why it has survived so long out of the 90s, why it's become a cornerstone musical, if that makes sense. I think I would definitely place it in the top 10 or 20 musicals from that decade. Okay. Um, I think because of the emotional material, because of how well-drawn the characters are. And I do think that the writing is of a very high quality. When you get to the big numbers, they are sublime. Spending all that time with those characters and finally getting to the the real heartfelt ballads in Falsetto Land particularly, fucking, it, it, it packs a wallop. And I think it, it, it puts on display how wonderful and how sentimental and how emotionally rich a writer Bill Finn is. So something else that interests me about falsettos it's not very often that you'll get a revival of a show directed by its original director it used and to be yet... very often it used to be very often because revival used to mean okay get this sets out this summer stock yeah. rented the touring sets get the sets out get the stage manager from the original production we're gonna put on the original production again but that well that's a remounting is the thing that's like you, you take well, the original production and you remount it the definition of revival has changed over the years, but at one point sure. th that was what revival meant. Revival meant you did the original production. And we talked in cabaret about how Sam Mendes kind of cemented the idea that a director is going to have a take on specific material. And that's why you revive mm. a show. Yeah. But my whole thing is it's, 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 it's fascinating to see a revival with a, given by the same director, where the production changes entirely. It is where it's not a even brand related. new production. Yeah. Yeah. Years after. Like, decades after. I mean, scratch. he futzed with Into the Woods in 2002. That's true. That's true. He did do that. Yes, he completely... And, and he reworked that even more than Falsettos, I would say. He, like, added new material to the show. Mm-hmm. I guess to not beat around the bush... What do you make of James Lapine's work here in Falsettos? Do you like the blocks? I think that's the first question. Do you like the blocks? I like the blocks as a stager. As a stager, I fucking love the blocks. I am not entirely dramaturgically sold on why, but functionally, I thought they worked a treat. I like the blocks. I think very clearly he lost an idea of what to do with them. And they were um, plastic, not in material sense, but like mind is plastic, state is plastic, moldable. Um, they were plastic enough, but at a certain point they could not do everything they needed to do. It was interesting to, to see the way he crafted scenes with those blocks. And, you know, to, like, pull something out and then all of a sudden there are chairs and then you rotate them around and we're in a room and then someone crashes through them and someone smacks them over. Well, it was very it's... inventive use. It was just, like, 
I don't know. Also, without it, you don't really have anything. Well, and it's impressive to watch because none of the blocks were marked. None of the yeah, blocks there was were no labeled. spike tape. There was no spike tape. There was nothing. So when the actors go about this thing, they need to know specifically every single block that is in that main block. And so when they pick up something, they know exactly what they have picked up and exactly where it goes. No, that, that's some good fucking memory work right there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like a kid's game playing shapes. <laughs> this yeah. is a circle. This is... Now you're giving more credence to the YouTube commenters. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> They're all playing with their little blocks, and then they become adults because AIDS. Yeah. I am a huge fan of James Lapine. I am a proud champion of, like, every work of his that I've seen so far. Falsettos is the first one I haven't full chest loved. I think he's he knows he's revisiting material and areas he's visited before. He knows he doesn't want to repeat himself. He has some interesting ideas that mostly work. But they don't completely work. And if you were to ask me, is this production well-directed? I would say the casting is poor enough that it is disqualifying to label it well-directed. Hmm. If I'm going to be honest. Yeah, all right. I think there are moments of James Lapine magnificence. And I think a lot of the kind of work he's able to draw out of actors is very evident here. And I also think that the tone that was established and the tone that was went after, which seems to be a very deliberate choice in the way that the show is blocked, in the way that the show is cast, in the way that the show is presented tonally, like it, it felt like a very deliberate choice. And I have to say it left me feeling cold. You're taking very sardonic, very blunt, very brutal material, very sort of unabashed, boom, annoying, in your face kind of thing. Annoying intentionally, but like annoying. And you then stage a production that gives you that full blast, where the performers are mugging to the audience and going, we're awful, you know? And it, 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 it's, it kind of wears. You can only take so much of these characters turning to you and going, we are cynical and repressed before, you know, you sort of tap out. I was maybe looking for a production that tried to show these characters getting along with each other's cynicism Mm -hmm. and trying to exist around them rather than each of them turning to the audience going, "I'm, I'm a New York bitch. You know what I mean? I do wonder how much of it is... James Lapine on a mental experiment. Oh, I have to imagine. I have to imagine. Because he's because, done the yeah. show. Yeah, He's done it. He knows he doesn't want to repeat himself. So then the production is an intellectual experiment on what can I actually do with this? What would so actually funny... work and isn't the original choice? Funny story about that. Very funny story. There's a story that I heard. I can't remember who or where I heard it from, but a story that I heard about them rehearsing on Breaking Down. Mm-hmm. And James Lapine is rehearsing with Stephanie J. Block, and she's cutting the banana, and James Lapine goes, and then at this point, you're going to cut your finger off. What? She was going to have Stephanie J. Block full-on cut her finger off in the middle of the number. 
and she would perform the entire song like with a finger missing after that moment. I can't remember. <laughs> I think I think there was I think there was gonna be blood or something. And Stephanie Why? straight up had Steph had to straight up put her foot down and go, Well when the fuck do I get the finger back? <laughs> and James Lapine was like Yeah, alright, okay, never mind. <laughs> just they just got it. That was very truly something that he brought up in rehearsal and was outright declined. Good thing. Good thing. <laughs> yeah. Can you fucking imagine? So yeah, I am fully of the what? opinion. I am fully of the opinion that this was absolutely a thought experiment for him. That he was gonna uh-huh. try some shit out and see what worked. No, uh-huh. like absolutely yeah. gives credence to that. Um yeah, no, it absolutely feels like he's gone. Okay, I know what to do with this show, so I'm gonna give it a, a, a new breath of life. I'm gonna give it a breath of fresh air. And we're gonna go completely out of the box with this one, and yada yip, yada boom. And it's a worthy experiment intellectually, and it doesn't not work. Is it the best the show could be? Probably not. You know, you like to see shit. Get thrown at the wall. You know? Uh, What's missing for me and where it becomes, okay, these characters are nothing but cynical, what I think is triggering that reaction. There's a missing passion here. He already did that show, too. Well, yeah, there's a missing Donna Murphy and... Oh, man. Do you think so? (laughs) There's a missing Donna Murphy... Overall, and we'll talk about people specifically, and there are people I like in here, but overall, I don't feel like it's a very passionate presentation of these characters and their emotions. Yeah, I'm with you. It Like, it, the like, intellectualism, like said, the intellectualism James Lapine was doing leaked into the acting performances. Yeah. Yes. Where they are more thought than felt. That's exactly... That is the word I've been looking for this entire, entire episode. Intellectualism. It's so aggressively into its own intellectualism that, you know, it, it, it comes off cold. And then it comes off very left-brained and very sardonic and very sort of cynical. And when you have those moments of emotion, it fe- that's when the show feels like it really opens up. That's when you feel like you really unlock something there. When you get past that intellectualism and go, yeah, but what? But where, where is the passion for these characters? Where is the love? Where is the heart? Where is the fire? Why are they doing anything they're doing? You know? Absolutely. A, I couldn't agree more. A good co-host would realize I just transitioned us into the cast portion of the episode. And it's good that they got the prayer shawl at least, but like, I don't know, you're going to get a robe for Andrew Reynolds and that's it. You need a full suit for him, nothing else. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, hey, Daniel. Yeah? It's finally, it's finally time for the part of the episode you've been most looking forward to. You know what? No, you don't get to do this. I seamlessly transitioned us into the cast <laughs> portion, and you were like, nope, I'm going to go on to another tangent. And that- <laughs> Jesus Christ. 
And Andrew, uh, you know, you think you would have gotten a suit for Andrew Reynolds, but for this bar mitzvah, but instead he's getting like a robe. What? He's in the hospital. B- Cast, baby. Who shall we start with? You know what would actually be fun? We've joked about it before. Tell me. You should write all of the cast names down on a piece of paper, rip up the piece of paper, and pick names out of a hat. Actually, yeah. No, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. Hold on. Yeah. One moment. Seven people in this cast, yeah? Sure. Great. I've got them all. Okay. I'm putting these names into a... Uh, one of those wheel spin lottery things a wheel of names it's called and based on what the outcome is we're gonna find out who the fuck we're about to talk about you ready mm-hmm. all right first up is oh come on tip over whoa just making the market is brandon urinowitz we're just... starting with just we tipping over Stephanie J. Block is Brandon Uranowitz. Uh, just we are made the fucking mark. Starting with Tony Award winner Brandon Uranowitz. This is this is destiny. I think. I think this is destiny. My prince. No, that's Zachary. Who? Zachary Prince. Who? Brandon Uranowitz's boy. Uh, 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 what? friend. Brandon, no, uh, no, 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 baby, it's fine. What? Brandon Uranowitz's friend. Brandon Uranowitz's friend from, uh, from school who, um, they just hang out together sometimes and that's it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. okay. Brandon Uranowitz and Falsettos. Um, hey, we've both seen him live. Tw- uh, me twice. You more than that, I think. Oh! Um, three times for me. Three times for me. Three times. Exactly. More hot pies. Uh, you were saying. Yeah, I've seen him three times. Uh, uh, we have both seen his Tony winning role in Leopoldstadt. We did. A very uh, deserving Tony win. Uh, and then I saw him do Assassins twice. I saw him do Leopoldstadt twice. I saw him do Assassins. You didn't see Assassins twice. Yeah, oh, yeah, you did. You saw the concert. But I you did. also saw I... Burn This. I did see Burn This. That's four. Thanks. Fuck. <laughs> I only have three. <laughs> you didn't see him in... Uh... Was he in Prince of Broadway? I saw him in Prince of Broadway. I did. That's four. We're tied up. There we go. And we saw him... Oh, the poor thing. He was going into the Sweeney Todd opening night. Oh, yeah, 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 we saw oh, him in Leopoldstadt. We were walking around. We were day, like sprinting the fuck over. We or were no, like same day. That same day. Yeah, it was the same day. Leopoldstadt ended. We're walking around. We're like, oh, it's the Sweeney Todd opening. Let's go see. And then like Brandon Uranowitz. No, I joke. I think one of us joked to the others like, you think Brandon is gonna like show up sprinting from the theater? And then there he fucking was in a tie. Sure enough, ten minutes after I lost my entire family to the Holocaust and death is the only reality in my life. There's Brandon Uranowitz walking into the going opening night of Sweeney Todd. About to go through something even more Even worse. Brutal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, oh, we have a good time with this podcast. Oh, oh, we have a good time. So Brandon why are you Uranowitz quitting? and Falsettos. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> hell. Brandon Uranowitz in, in fucking the falsettes. I love him. He's the best person in this cast. I also think this is where my crush on him originated. I don't know why. I I see it. I see it for you. He's a little rugged. I don't have crushes on many people. 
So when so when you do it special? It's him and it's Jonathan Groff. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, wow. The two. How soon we forget those who brought us where we were. How soon we forget Mr. Claiborne Elder. Who oh, well. it over for fucking for violent what? months. That was another one friendship. where that was another one where I would not admit that he had a child. And I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Very much in the same vein, in case the audience needs just to keep like, up just with. Just like you haven't admitted it just then. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't have a child. I don't know what you're talking about. Oi, Brandy, Brandy Rogers is very good. It's, you can, I don't know if I could just tell that this part was written for Chip Zion or if he has a lot of the same vocal qualities, but I got hints of Zion. He's just so charismatic and yeah. it's so well acted and he's so likable. And he's so, he's so flexible as a performer. Like, is he flexible? Well, I have um, not heard specifically. Have you heard? Anyhow, I, I know what I've seen seen anyway he has some of the best moments what did he get show. up to he has this he has oh actually he came out in his tidy whities at one point forgot about that it's a fantastic performance he gets a lot of the funniest material or at least he makes he makes a lot of the material seem like it's the funniest in the production at least uh and then also has to balance it with moments of genuine heartfelt emotion Mm-hmm. And he got a Tony nom for this, and it was very well deserved. Yes, very, very well deserved. Mm-hmm. Um. All right. Would you like to move on to the next? Sure. Run the wheel again. All right. Wheels up, and it's going to be one. Ah, and we have landed on Christian Borle. A fantastic one-two punch here. Shall you start or I? I think you have to, because I don't have the verbal stamina for this. <sighs> you never have enough stamina for anything. Okay, bottom. You admitted yourself that I am not a bottom because I am not giving enough. And you know what? That's true. <laughs> that is true. As long as you're the one to say it. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. That was, I don't, listen, As there's so much I tolerate on this podcast, but there are moments of just pure excessiveness and just to a degree where it's demonstrably unnecessary. And Dan, that, that was something. Anyway, he, (laughs) who? Christian Sure, gotcha. <laughs> I will be unpopular here. Oh, won't you ever? He gave me nothing as Marvin. Nothing. Mm. Nada. Who gave you nothing Zero. Christian Brrrr. Oh, gotcha. I thought you were talking about Mandy Patinkin. I want to watch Mandy Patinkin! As who? Marm! Well, who played him here? Stop it. <laughs> okay. Stop it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's worth a try. Christian Brrr is not gay for a second. Not believable as gay for a second. I'm not one, I'm not an absolutionist that only casts gay people in gay people roles, but he's not believable as gay for one second. 
he's not neurotic and he's not believable as neurotic for one second. No, he didn't. No, th- honestly, th- this might be the most telling thing in the world for me. That was what I latched on to that. He didn't seem neurotic. He is very miscast mm-hmm. and really just gave me nothing, nothing whatsoever. He's there. Yeah. Kind of did the role. There are moments of Borle's performance where I sat there watching, God, James Lapine's a good director. An indiscreetness. Borle works hard. I'm not going to begrudge him that. He works hard. He's just not believable in the slightest. He's miscast. Doesn't seem to know he's miscast. Doesn't really work to create the character that's on the page. So he's working hard, but he's also just, I hate to say being himself because that's such an unfair criticism, but it does feel like he's being himself and he happens to be in this show called Falsettos. But also, mm-hmm. I, I I say works hard, but there's a certain laziness because how do you not look at that page and create a character that is somewhat resemblant to the character on the page? I did I... Up front, to, to, to say my piece about him, I didn't really... I, I don't know. I didn't take much away from him. He's a fine singer. He's a fine performer. He's okay as a vocalist. He's not a great vocalist. He's okay. It's, it's a fine, it's a fine it. performance. He doesn't, he doesn't tank any of the material, but he doesn't make it sore. Mm-hmm. I, I think he tanks it. For me... He tanks it because... I think I could understand him tanking it by virtue of him not making it sore. Because it doesn't seem like very hard material to make sore. The show is centered around Marvin. Marvin, whatever he has to be, has to be the equivalent of some kind of black hole that is sucking everything into him. And Brrrl is just there. He's not Mm -hmm. doing that. The show then doesn't have a center. As a result. Yeah. And, and and it makes the rest of the production sort of feel a bit more flippy floppy. Yep. Sure. That's my take. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up. Spin the wheel. Next up we got... Uh, his partner, Andrew Rannells. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it makes sense that they're together. Okay. okay. Andrew Rannells is someone that I have absolutely hated in the past and have come to greatly respect. Interesting. And the hatred originates here with falsettos. But he is someone that I greatly respect. What it was, it was the Boys in the Band movie. They did the remake of Boys in the Mm, Band. Yeah. And I was expecting and he did the revival and then the movie, the entire revival cast was in the movie. Um, yep. I expected to hate him because I, I've just always hated him. So I expected mm-hmm. to hate him and I sat there and by the end I was like, oh, he deserves an Oscar nomination for this because what I saw was someone who was so insanely giving to the other performers 
mm-hmm. and setting other performers up correctly and was so fully invested in the given circumstances of that party and that night and every moment was connected to every member of the cast and like had opinions of everyone that was in that on that stage in that movie with him and let those opinions didn't call attention to himself but let those opinions be the natural reactions he had to everything so Sometimes you'd have a character say something that was ridiculous and it would cut to Rannells and Rannells knows the thing that is said is going to affect character C. So he looks over to character C with a kind of supportive glance like you're going to get through this. And he held that up for the entire movie and did that level of work to an extent that no one else in the cast did. Mm-hmm. Um, and was just so incredibly supportive of the other people and so connected every moment to every person that I was like, he deserves an Oscar nomination. That is great acting. And as I have seen him in other things, that seems to be the case. He seems to be an endlessly generous actor who creates real emotional connections, if not with the co-workers, then with the characters they are presenting on stage or on screen. And that I can endlessly respect. Why I hated him, you can't sit there. Do you regret... After being screwed out of today. He can't sing it. He can't sing it. It's a it's, it's an it's annoying a nasal voice that I do not want to listen to. Yeah. And especially and, and it, it goes over to Bor Brutu, who has also, somewhat of a nasal voice, not to the extent of Reynolds, but is on the nasal spectrum. And you have them with What Would I Do? And it is the most impassioned male-male love duet in musical theater. It's arguably the single moment the entire history of musical theater has lived up to. And neither of them can sing it. And it's not impassioned. Mm. And they kind of get through it. And what I want to hear are soaring vocals. But yeah, my opinion of him watching it today changed because I previously hated him. Since the last time I've seen this, I have come to respect and see what he does well. And I was able to recognize, okay, that's true here. You said at one point it looked like he was about to cry um, with Jason. Yes. So, yeah, it's days like this and all these people are coming in and there's there's this like trope about characters in recovery that it's something that's addressed very head on in Angels in America, particularly to the AIDS crisis. But. When someone in recovery is burdened with the task of making everyone else around them feel better about themselves, 
when it's like everyone else has the burden of trying to deal with you, I guess, and then it's it it'll feel like the task of the person affected to make everyone else feel better. And that's very much on display in days like this. Everyone is like trying to pretend that they're there to tend for Wizard to make him feel better, and in reality everything they're doing is to make themselves feel better about him. Mm-hmm. And then you just have Jason, who's just there and honest. He's the only person in this moment who's actually being honest, who's not putting on the guise of, I'm going to help you out so much, and you're going to feel so much better, and you're looking great, and everything's great, and oh, you're so good, and everything's so good. And it's like them lying to themselves. Jason is the one going, like, you look like shit. I'll, help, I'll let you win. And he goes, no, don't let me win. He goes, I'll let you win. And it's this moment of like pure honesty of like I will tend to you. I will I think I think you'll like this and so that. And for the entire rest of the song, Wizard only looks at Jason. And he looks at Jason with the most love and adoration that you could imagine. And he he looks like he's about to cry. It's it, it it's one of the most it was one of the most touching moments of this production for me. Mm-hmm. This actual real bond, this genuine connection between Wizard and Jason, this real love that they have for each other, and how fucking much Jason helps Wizard in that moment. And that, for me, was the moment that I saw Andrew Rannells as, a, as an incredible performer. Mm-hmm. It, it was that and Gotta Die Sometime. Because that was a moment where in the worst, most fucking terrible, banal impulses of a performer, you take that moment and you go, yeah, this is my big moment. I will embrace my death and I will look into the abyss and I will let myself slip away and I will give up and I will sing this ballad, whatever, right? And Andrew Rannells, I just don't have the energy for that. I don't have the energy to fight altogether. I know what's going on and I know what this needs to be and I just have to embrace it and so I will in spite of what I want it's just I just gotta I don't know that that really that, I, I, I was really affected by that he does terrific detailed work as an actor mm-hmm. but then there's the vocals I and just wish he could sing it and he can't yeah it's it's just very it's very congested it's very nasal and that's just him as a performer it's the exact same on like Book of Mormon yeah, but in Book of Mormon, it's not... You can accept on some of the more modern scores, okay, that's how it's supposed to sound. It's not particularly what I like, but that's how it's supposed to sound. Um, when you're going into a revival and you know the score beforehand and you know what heights some of these moments could reach, do you regret? That's not going to cut it. Yeah. It's just not going to cut it. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to roll it one last time and uh, see see what the future has in store for us. It spins and it spins and it spins and it spins and it spins. And wouldn't you know it, it's landed on the one option we had left, Stephanie J. Block. Um, Lovely. Viewer, you have to imagine, I'm looking at a perfect circle, one color, that just a step on it and i just watched it spin around like a fucking hamster in a wheel just waited for it to slow down that was that was fun for me thanks for indulging me stephanie jablock the jablock i think this is the most i've ever liked her 
Probably same. She's very good in this. Yeah. Uh, she sings well. It is a war-torn, wicked voice. Which means awkward right. patches will occur. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting that she doesn't really have a... She doesn't really have, like, a mezzo forte. No. No, no, she has a forte just... and a mezzo piano. Like, that's it. Uh-huh. Which is interesting. <laughs> There's technical reasons why that is that are very boring that we won't get into. Cool. But that is a deficiency in technique and the way the voice is aged. She's funny in this. She is funny. It's very effortful. I don't think there's anything that Stephanie J. Block will ever or could ever do that is not going to feel very effortful. If you catch my drift. Hmm. But she is funny. She is likable. She sings it well enough. And I think it's a very solid performance here. Mm. There are moments of a really great comic turn here. Mm-hmm. I thought it was very well sung. I thought it was well inhabited. But to be totally frank, it didn't leave the biggest mark on me. It was... Is it the character or is it her? I think maybe the character, but... yeah. I, I still didn't walk away from it with much of a decisive opinion of Stephanie G. Block. Again, I thought it was a very good performance, and I think she's a very good performer. Just didn't give me enough to really dig into her, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say that Trina is underwritten. I don't think she's underwritten, but she's not the focal point really ever. Uh, she has interjections that matter a lot. No, I, I think it's a solid performance. I think she does a great job. I believe she was Tony nominated for this. Very deserving. Yeah. I, I get behind that being a Tony-worthy performance. Mm-hmm. Um, that's everyone who I really have something to say about. Yeah, same. Um, otherwise, we can't really do like a full cast roundup because that's kind of kind of just have. I guess all that's really left is uh, wrapping up our thoughts. Let's talk about this pro shot. Sure. This is from the Live at Lincoln Center series. Mm-hmm. Um, despite this being a recording from the Walter Kerr Theater, this was, in fact, produced by Lincoln Center. Yes. Lincoln Center has produced outside of their specific Beaumont campus before. Yeah, absolutely. The pro shot is very good. It is an excellent pro shot. And I had a revelation about pro shots as I was watching this that I don't necessarily attribute to like a fault of this pro shot, but something that won't leave my mind. Anyway. I think pro shots allow us a sort of perspective of a piece of musical theater that the audience was never meant to have. And therein is is potentially problematic about a digestion of the work relative to the way an audience would digest a work. Which is always, like, you know, that is the common argument about pro shots in general. The thing is like, oh, it's not going to replicate the audience experience. But I think it sort of gives you an amount of intimacy, an amount of specifically detail 
that you would not necessarily pick up in the acoustic landscape of being in that theater. And it gives you a kind of detail that might actually be unproductive to your enjoyment of the show. Do you understand what I mean and or agree? Well, I think we've talked about this. We've had friends that have gone back to see shows a million times Mm -hmm. and have started to really pick things apart. And um, I've said to you, not in front of them, but I've said to you, shows are meant to be seen once. Yes. And if it's It's a good show, if it's a good show, you'll see it revived in 15 years. You're not meant to go back and see a piece of theater over and over and over again. There are people that do that, but they are experiencing that piece of theater in a way that it was not created for, nor intended to be viewed. Yeah. And I think that's something that is capable with pro shots, but I think in general, it's like the way that you are, the the way that you are viewing these performances when they are performing to the back of the house, the way that you're hearing these arrangements and these orchestrations and these vocal performances when they are specifically attuned to live performance rather than recorded performance, it doesn't, tend to do favors i find it tends to it tends to be so much easier to nitpick and so much easier to break apart and so much easier to see the cracks in whereas as an audience member never in a million years would you have noticed those cracks you know what i mean i couldn't stop thinking about how much more i might have enjoyed the show if i was just in the audience well i mean but it's a good thing that it was recorded and it's a good oh, thing people... absolutely yeah i am a th- and I mean, so the reason we did this podcast is because you and I are both very dedicated theater preservationists, you know? It's just interesting to really see that being one of the symptoms of this style of recording. I, I, it never really occurred to me in the same way as it did for this, and I just thought it was worth bringing up. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's my soapbox. Otherwise, it's just an A-plus pro shot. This is a fantastic, fantastic capture of a production. It really does get every detail it frames it in such a way that it adds to the production rather than just plainly demonstrates it or worse takes away from it it's very particular in its cinematography and its editing without ever distracting and i think it's everything a pro shot should be yeah it's terrific recording yeah this is a fantastic a plus pro shot how about falsettos Falsettos as a show, I would probably put at an A minus. This production is probably a B minus. I would be curious to see another production of Falsettos. I'd be really curious. I really want to watch this original Broadway production. Um, I want to watch Mary Patinka. Well, that's what I, that's what I was basically saying without triggering you. Well, um, I'm sorry, but Jewish neurotic. Okay, he's not gay, but he could probably pass. Jewish neurotic. That's Manny Patinkin. I would be curious. Manny Patinkin is perfect. Actually, very curious. Is perfectly cast. Well, he did the knife where he was trans. That's not even close to the same thing. No, no, but I mean, he's been in the wider rainbow <laughs> umbrella before. Yeah, and he, also, he did. <laughs> he did Yentl. Yeah, and he also. I mean, he yeah. wasn't, Barbara was the one that crossed gender barriers in that one, but he did Yentl. 
Yeah, and he also did the Wild Party where he was black. Cut that. Um, <laughs> anyway, I don't see me I also am a bit, yeah, I want like yeah, me too. But I, I and that's why I'm 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 not so certain about how to totally letter grade this because I do think a bunch of this. A bunch of my feelings of the show are really influenced by this production. And again, you have the production by book writer James Lapine. To an extent, it's got to inform you about what the show is through his eyes. Because, you know, if he has some sort of authorial whatever feeling about this show. In Jimmy's eyes, I'm young, I'm beautiful. But there are still elements of this show that... I don't know, feel undiscovered, I guess. I don't know. I would want to see a completely different take on this show to fully actually be able to give it a real solid letter grade. I don't know. I'm I'm feeling like a B plus right now. And I feel like a different production of this show will change my mind there. But I guess for the sake of putting a cap on this thing, I'm going to say that right now I'm feeling a B plus. Well, that's falsettos. Yeah, I guess so. I want to see Main Patinkin. Then go see him. Then go see him. What's next, Daniel? Oh, this is a question. This is constantly a question. What is next? Where are we going and what will we find? What's in this grab bag that I call my mind? What am I doing alone on the shelf? Ain't it a shame? There's no one to blame but myself. Do you know yet? No, you gotta tell me. Do I keep falling in love for just the kick of it? Staggering through the thin and thick of it. Hating each old entire trick of it. Not I am. I'm good and sick of it. Where am I going? Why do I care? Run to the Bronx or Washington Square. No matter where I run, I meet myself there. Yay! <laughs> Like, you were so excited that you just did that. Like, you were just so amped. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> oh, my gosh. Are we going into our Fosse-thon? Sure! Folks, for a minute we've been talking about doing a little Fosse-thon. We're gonna go... We, 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 Bob Fosse is a big overarching topic. He's a big overarching We've never man. covered a goddamn thing he did. We never did, and because every single time I thought of a show or brought up a show, it was always you going, no, let's wait till the Fosse-thon. And then you brought up a show, and I was like, no, let's wait till the Fosse-thon. Well, guess what? Fucking Fosse-thon, baby. Welcome to the Fosse-thon. We're going to be going through the fucking canal of Fosse shows. We're going to be talking about this man, talking about his work. I've read his biography twice. I'm ready to delve into the actual works now. Yay! <laughs> Dan, which charity are we watching? I think we're going to watch Donna McKechnie. Very good, very good. I could support that. I have a program of Donna McKechnie. He died. He died. Wow, that was Going to that show. Yeah. Well, no, not to mine. Not to mine. Canada had no hand in this. Well, he he died going to the Donna McKechnie uh, Sweet Charity. 
Yeah, but I, I think we're I think we're watching Donna McKechnie because I think she's possibly we don't have a video of Gwen Verdon, but I think she's possibly the best charity we have. It's a good chance, and I think that's probably the only time we're going to see a Bob Fosse directed performance. Am I? This correct? is true. This is true because, it, um, actually, it depends on Unless how we far watch a we movie. go. It depends on if we watch a movie. That, oh, it depends yep. on how yep, far yep, we go. Yep. Well, here we go, folks. Off we go to live, hopefully, hopefully ever, ever, ever after. after. See you, Do you next week have with Sweet Charity. How's about a few laughs? I can show you a good time! If you enjoyed the episode, rate us, review us, and subscribe to us on your platform of choice. And if you have any recommendations, questions, or virtual flowers to send our way, email us at unccpodcast at gmail.com. The Unauthorized Critic Circle Podcast is unauthorized. The podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Falsettos. And all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyright of the respective trademark and copyright holders. The Unauthorized Critic Circle cannot help the listener locate or distribute recordings discussed here. Thank you.